0: Hello, I'm Katie Litchfield, founder of Weekwell. This is the Weekwell Unfiltered podcast, and you're listening to the CEO's Uncut series, which is proudly supported by the Wall Street Journal Barons Group. Three years ago, I left my job of 18 years to set up Weekwell because I'd had enough of standing by and watching women getting passed up for top corporate executive committee roles. Now, Weekwell is on a mission to build a better business world. Over the course of this series, I have been talking to the CEOs of some of the world's largest organizations, asking them the questions they don't normally get asked about gender balance. In this episode, I talk to Penny James, the CEO of Direct Line Group. Penny joined the board of Direct Line in 2017 as CFO before taking on the leadership of the FTSE listed insurer in 2019. So Penny, welcome to Weekwell. First up, what kind of year have you had? It's been um it's been really interesting.
1: Last year was incredible just in terms of the passion and the energy of everybody pulling together through the the pandemic, moving to home working, getting back on track. This year's had a really different vibe, Um, I think. All of us sort of uh, in the marathon rather than the sprint mode. Um, uh, But you can really feel the organisation and the country starting to pull through the pandemic now. So we had some dark days early in sort of February time, but actually now spirits are high um, uh, and we're feeling really optimistic.
0: Personally, what has been your biggest challenge?
1: Well, I think one of the roles of a CEO is to kind of inject the tone into the organisation. And so uh, when times are tough or people are in all different personal circumstances and, you know, the stress is on at work or there's huge amounts to deliver, um, you actually inject a huge amount of personal energy into buoying the organisation with you. Um, and and I, I think cumulatively, I kind of feel the strain of that now after, you know, uh, after probably 18 months of working from home and trying to project energy through a screen is not as easy as it is in front of people just engaging with them around an office. So uh, as I look back, it's not that there's been one moment that's been catastrophically difficult or another moment that's been so brilliant. It's just that constantly we need to keep supporting and engaging with one another. <laughs>
0: looking back now over your whole life, not just at work, have there been any women who've inspired you? And if so, how did they inspire you? Oh, that's interesting.
1: Well, I would say I'd point two, I think. Um, uh, One, I had a headmistress when I was seven. um, And she was an extraordinary lady. Um, i am sadly passed away now. um, But she, she, she was a, she just loved and believed that all kids could absorb infinite amounts of knowledge at that age. And so um, she taught us to be curious and taught us to have no limitation to what you could think about and engage in. Um, uh, and she built a team of sort of, you know, Cambridge professors standard people that were retiring, that loved kids, who kind of inspired in lots of in lots of directions. Um, and for me, that sort of was the ultimate equality in a way, because it was all about uh, exploring, um, you know, what minds and young minds can do. So I would have Mrs. Quibell Smith was her name, Mrs. Quibell Smith on the list. Um, I think the other person was around, well, I, I must have been around 24, 25. And I was a junior accountant working uh, in the life industry for Allied Dunbar as was. And there was an audit partner. Um, uh, a, a woman audit partner called Claire Thompson. So she still, she, she was actually on the board with me at Direct Line. And Claire went toe to toe with the guys. She had a young family um, uh, and she could still hold her own with some of the strongest sort of uh, male classic um, you know, CFO CEOs I've seen and do it with just calm uh, authority. Um, and I can remember driving back uh, after seeing her deliver this in some meeting or other one day and thinking, it's possible to have it all. Um, uh, and she's the first person that made me question, you know, what my future might be. Love
0: that story. How important is a network to your career and has a good network helped with recruitment too?
1: I used to hate the concept of networks, of glad handing and, you know, sort of smooch, smooching up to people and... Um, It feels deeply uncomfortable um, and um, it felt like something that people did to get into a club. And now it's something very, very different for me. Um, uh, About the stage that I decided that I wanted to get onto XCO somewhere around there, I kind of realized that you have to actually put yourself out there. Um, Part of being uh, an XCO member is being able to draw insights in from all over the place, not just from your sphere of knowledge. And you can only do that if you have connections all over the place uh, of different shapes or forms, and you never know where that that clever thought's gonna come from. So you've got to sort of reach far and wide to get it. And so I started the process of networking, um, uh, although we do need to think of a better name for it, Um, at that point. and after a while you just get used to walking into a room and walking up to people cold and uh, and, and saying who you are. Um, and then it's quite, then it becomes enjoyable. Um, when you're a CEO um, and it feeds something that's really important actually, um, it, it feeds curiosity. When When people hire CEOs or really senior people, one of the things they look for is curiosity. Can you draw information in from outside? Simulate it and work out work out how you build off it. And if you're not networking in some shape or form, um, very difficult to achieve that. But now networking is different for me. It's that. So I do all sorts of things with all sorts of I attend all sorts of meetings and dinners and things with all sorts of people I've never met before to kind of act as a sponge. Um, but I also have safe spaces with other CEOs. And it's not until you become a CEO that you realize that when you look around, there's no one, there's no one who's who's left. no one who's left to prop you up and all your relationships have shifted with even your friends that you you work with when you get promoted or you know get given the big job as it were. And you realize that the only people who can really relate to that are other CEOs. And so now I've got little groups of CEOs that in various different shapes and forms, I, you know, uh, I connect with or drink with or, you know, natter with. And really, they're just safe spaces to, to let off steam and, um, you know, moan, moan about the world or, or infuse about the world, depending on how everyone's feeling.
0: With the recently announced changes to your leadership, you have 54.5% female representation at Direct Lines Executive Committee. How did you get there? And how did you go about finding uh, these women?
1: It's, it's a great question, because um, uh, it's it's certainly conscious that we needed to work on diversity. I'm not sure I sat there going, I've got a clear 50% uh, by X date. Well, I didn't. Um, but certainly, when I joined uh, Direct Line Group, I was the only female on the XCO. Um, so in uh, the two years that um, uh, I've been running it, it's quite a transformation. Um, uh, the, and I think the XCo has transformed really as our requirements have changed. So as the business has changed, you need a different combination of skills and people around the table to deliver that in the right way. So excos, I think, have evolutions because of that, because of the stage of the business. And certainly, we've been through uh, or are going through sort of that uh, kind of that, that evolution. And what those moments do is give you an opportunity um uh to do some rebalancing um and so none of those roles have been consciously appear of the individuals being consciously picked because they're a woman um but what we do do is make sure that when we're looking at the lists internal or external they're balanced lists so we're forcing the the question of uh you know uh, uh the visibility if you like of the opportunities out there we also i also look at the balance of the exco, so um, you don't pick individuals role by role. Uh, what you're trying to do is create a team of people with uh, combined insight, skills, and balances that work in the whole. Um, and if you think about it like that, it's much easier to play the balances on different dynamics, not just gender, um, but innovation and uh, you know, uh, you know, resilience and lots of different dimensions. Um, uh, and in doing that it kind of enables change. I think that the last one I'd I'd say was a recommendation actually from Carolyn McCall. Uh, And sometimes you need a bit of creativity. So I have created roles on the Exco at times of different shapes and sizes to enable people to step into the Exco and get used to it and then move them. At the relevant point, into into you know the the more core cool role, if you like, that that perhaps I'd already got in the back of my mind. So um, so it takes a bit of creativity, it takes some discipline, and, it's, and it and it really means being conscious in the moments where you have opportunities to make a difference.
0: What one thing could be a game changer when it comes to persuading CEOs to back talented women for the C-suite?
1: I always said, I don't think the world changes until the CEO, the, you know the next generation of CEOs you know change with it. They're, they're the they're the key drivers. But I would come back to this point uh, that says, what I often hear is, but you've got to recruit the best person for the job. And that's fair in many ways, but it depends what the definition of best is. If the definition of best is I need someone to contribute to this team, uh, and bring new perspectives to it in a different way. You're going to get a very different outcome to, uh, uh, I need someone who looks looks and sounds like the last person because I trust that because that worked last time. And so I think the game changer is enforcing people to think or encouraging CEOs to think more broadly about how what the compositions of their teams are and therefore what the dynamics are they're looking for it. But I'm, you know, super confident there are not lots of CEOs coming through now who think very differently, and they are looking at a wall of innovation and tech out there, in customer interactions that are completely different and are moving at a rate of knots that no not seen, and so they're having to think differently about what their team constructs look like, and uh, you know, in that guise, and that I think is a real opportunity.
0: Increasingly, we're hearing stories about women helping each other, or. Don't help each other in a lot of cases <laughs> with advice and mentoring, championing each other. What is your experience of that regarding your rise to CEO and helping other women on the way up? So, I think
1: most women help other women. I think most of us who've got senior know we've got a duty to help people um, who are not there yet, for want of better description, uh, by giving us. Learning, you know, by sharing our learnings, um, uh, and so all of all of us, the vast majority of senior women I know, will mentor and or champion people, depending what it is. We might cross uh, cross ask one another about candidates, uh, you know, to make sure we've got a sweep on the list, um, and certainly we are encouraging and supporting one another um to the extent that that we can in different industries and so on and i'll, I'll give you an example so when i became ceo i got an email from uh, Alison Britton, who runs whipbread fabulous lady never met her before and it just said if you want a cup of coffee anytime let me know i'm sure you've got it all taped but if i can share what i've learned happy to." By the way, Liv Garfield did it for me when I was made, you know, when I was made CEO, Um, and things like that make a huge difference. Um, And so when Alison Rose was made up to to run RBS, I emailed her and said, "When I was made up, Alison Britton wrote to me," and that continues. So, um, you know, so so we do, I think, try and help out one another where we can um,
0: because there's not that many of us. And also it's all just bringing it back to being human, isn't it? You know, that you just help yeah. each other up. <laughs> well, that's right.
1: I, 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 I think that's right. The other thing I would say is it's not only women that I mentor and, and offer advice to. So it's not limited in that sense. Um, but there is a, you know, there, there is an understanding um, that, that we can in that sense uh, just help, help people with a little guidance on the way.
0: Many of our Weekwell finalists uh, want me to ask your advice about how best to become a member of the leadership team. What advice would you give them?
1: Oh, right. Yeah, lots. Um, I think my learnings are sort of this. Um, the first thing I'd say is that everybody, I almost everyone I know who isn't on the leadership team or on the exco. Believes that they're ready to be on an Exco. Um, and I think there's a difference between being kind of capable of being on an Exco and being ready. Um, so I first went on to an Exco at, at, at PRUE. Um, I became the chief risk officer uh, at Prudential and stepped up. And I'd been doing uh, broadly the financial controller role plus, plus some bits. And I was, in my mind, as busy as it was possible to get. Uh, So actually, I hadn't really thought about kind of how I would handle my capacity and all of those sorts of things. And I did the classic female thing of saying, don't need the chauffeur, don't need the first cast travel, who needs all of that? You know, Um, and about eight weeks later, I found myself having an MRI scan because I'd lost the feeling in my toes and fingers, um, uh, which had turned out to be um, uh, nothing more serious than not looking after yourself. Um, but my point is the transition is actually a really big one. It's a big one mentally. Um, it's a big one in terms of scale. Um, and so um, what, I, what I really believe is that people, when they're going for either board roles or for exco co roles, need to put themselves in the mind of the CEO or the board that are hiring, or probably both the CEO and the board because they won't have the same view and to think about what they're looking for. And uh, these conversations are uh, born uh, full of generalizations, but most women that I mentor uh, will be of the philosophy, if you work really hard and you're bloody good at your job, great things will happen. And then find out that life is not like that. And then they go, but it's not fair that he got the job or they got the job or whoever it is got the job. And I didn't because I'm the best, whatever it is. And I did that, you know, my my journey of discovery started when um, uh, I think it was legal in general, who hired a new CFO. And in my mind, uh, I was the most senior uh, sort of finance person in the industry who wasn't already a CFO. So the next one was mine, I mean, clearly. Um, and I knew it was good because it was you know, the biggest, you know, the, I already had the biggest financial controller job in the industry, so clearly it was mine. And nobody phoned me. Um, I didn't phone them, it has to be said, um, because you wouldn't do that because I'm a female, because that's a bit embarrassing. Um, uh, and in the end, I went to see them, uh, headhunters. And I said, why didn't you phone me? Um, and it was the answers to that question which basically start with you know, well nobody knows you. Um, uh, you know that set the path for me from there, because soon after that I you know um, I took on a board role at, uh, at Admiral, um, which is part of building my experience of you know do I know how to operate as a board and can I can I demonstrate to non-execs that I understand what that interaction is like, can I form my own view of how I would lead businesses or what, how I would think about issues from that perspective? Um, uh, can I form relationships? You know, it's, it's super powerful if when someone's hiring someone onto a board or an ex-co, somebody, someone, one of their peers can say, well, she's already on my board and, and she's, she's all right. You know, that's a big de-risker for a board. Um, so so I, I guess what I'd say, is it's a conscious thing to think about what not what you think you are, but what somebody looking at you is going to see and what it is that um, they're going to see that you're brilliant at and what you're asking them to take a risk on. And then ask yourself whether you can take out the risks.
0: When you said about, you know, the headhunters saying that nobody knows you and you kind of went for that, you know, um board position was there anything else that you did that wasn't board related to actually get more visible
1: you know I made it clear in the Prue although I think they knew it before I did that I did want to get to ISCO level and I didn't do I think you have to be patient I kind of uh, I, I kind of believe you can set the environment and all the all the circumstances up in your favor but um What you can't do is box people in. In the end, the opportunities will come at the time that is right for the business. And that may or may not be the right time for you as an individual. But if so, other opportunities will come elsewhere. So you can't kind of pick the timing and pin on one role in one organization. What you can do is cultivate the the understanding of you and the understanding of the world of you. And so networking, as you put it, is, is part of that. So I started to meet up in lots of different, different groups and engage in things like that. Um, I did what I, frankly, I always have done all my career, which is if there's uh, an interesting, risky, high-profile project, I'll stick my hand in the air uh, for it. Um, and I always try and reduce my current, the, the amount of time my current role takes I used to say, I'm not sure this works at CEO level, but, um, uh, to about 50% in a couple of years, because it forces you to hire really good people so that, so that it's less of a risk to move you on or promote you. Uh, and also, you know, like most bright people, I get bored easily. So, um, doing the same thing, you know, once is learning twice is developing it. The third time you're starting to, you know, you're starting to wane. So, By that time, you need to have somebody else who's driving it for you, and you can use the spare capacity to do other interesting things. And they are almost always the things that have the profile, because nobody really looks at BAU. What they look at is the the big transformation delivery, the big M&A project, the big partnership deal, or in my case, the big regulatory reform. And you go, why would you want to do a regulatory reform? Because it mattered at that point more to the board than pretty much anything else. And it also built my relationships in the regulators, which in a regulated industry space is important. So you started to have externals that talk to the board about you or talk to ex members about you. So it's for me, it's finding um, a combination uh, uh, of, you know, touch points with people so that you become part of the understood ether of the next it becomes natural that you're you know, the next ex co-player or whatever, or thought of in that category because because you're in the in the loops. And where I see it fail is you see um, people, and I have done this at times in my career, fall into the um, brilliant number two category. I love Penny, she's great. You know, she does all my reports for me. She, you know, she's great. I trust her impeccably, trust her with the team dynamics and, and so on and so forth. And that lets me go and present to the board and talk to everybody that matters. Uh, So you have to be the person who is in some way seen as responsible for delivering.
0: Brilliant answer. Brilliant advice. Thank you, Penny. What makes a great leader in your mind?
1: Gosh, many things. Um, I think that is quite a lot. I think, um, uh, and uh, I'm not sure I know how how tangible it is, but there are, there are a couple of things that are linked, I think, um, that I would draw on. Um, the first is about trust and belief. And I saw, uh, I saw Martin Johnson, who is, who you know, British Lions captain and um, uh, captained us to the World Cup in rugby uh, many moons ago. Um, and somebody was talking about, one of his teammates was talking about him, uh, and then saying that he never actually used to say anything He just used to exude belief in his team. And I thought that was a really interesting thing because I think, you know, being a leader is not uh, about telling people what to do. There are some decisions you have to make um, because no one else can, but it is not. It's about setting the directional path such that an organization and the people below you can fill in all the dots on the way. And in an ideal world, maybe you never have to set the directional path or even better, they don't know you set it. Uh, They think they found it themselves, but but actually the point is you kind of lead from the back rather than the front. Now you've got to lead from the front on culture and energy and belief and all of those sorts of things to create the environment that enables that. Uh, but, But I'm really, I was just really curious by that. How do you convey belief to people? Without saying, you know, you do a fantastic job because they're given piece of it the CEO. Does that's a bit patronising, you know? How do you actually just form that with people? Um, there's a Clinton quote which I won't be able to remember the quote. Uh, quote. Um, it's a book one of my um, uh, one of my team uh, gave to me recently on um, bits of advice that famous people w- you know would give the world. If you like, what's the one piece of advice? And the Bill Clinton one goes something like this: It goes, um, see the person in front of you, whoever they are. So if it's the tea lady, know her, make her feel as though you know her, even if you can't remember her name. Or if it's the you know the receptionist, and make sure you acknowledge him every time you walk into the building. Or if it's uh, and. Um, there is huge truth in that I think I think you can only build trust if you build relationships with people and to build relationships you have to give of yourself so um, so for me uh, it, it's in that space it's it's in that you know uh, creating a, an environment of belief and demonstrating that you trust people and then giving them the space to space to move I have to say I'm still work in progress so some of this is theory but uh, you know it's uh, no, That's how I think
0: you, about it. Thank you for sharing that. It's fascinating, totally fascinating. Um, do you manage women uh, in a different way to men? I think
1: I manage everybody differently. Um, so I'm not sure I do this. Con- um, do I do this consciously? No, I probably do. So, so historically, um, I'm quite intuitive about people, or at least I used to be quite intuitive about people. And so um, and I used to put quite a lot of effort into building relationships with people because, I mean, broadly, it, uh, and this was particularly true in Prudential, I think, as a culture. Um, if you were someone they kind of liked and you were credible in your role, so you knew what you were talking about, you were kind of all right. You could get you could influence anything. And those two criteria kind of pervaded it. So. Um, so I come from a world where you build relationships with people. And if you can help someone out, you help them out. And if you demonstrate trust you know, in people, they'll demonstrate it back. And I can, think of, I can only think of about two examples in my whole career where people have let me down when I've done that. So you think you're making yourself vulnerable, but not, not to any big, great degree, I think. So actually, but, but if you're going to do that all the time, how do you connect with people? You're looking at an individual and so I wouldn't say that I have some macro philosophy that's different for different categories of people or different shapes or sizes or, but I am trying to work out how to connect with an individual at any point in time and what it is that they need. And and now I think the more senior you get, the more conscious that gets. So I do have a coach now. Um, I haven't had a coach all my career. I have a super duper coach, but a lot of the time when we talk, it's, it's really odd how what reaction somebody's have had this had over here. When you're CEO, you often can't see all the moving parts. You've got this sort of helicopter view of the world, but you don't you don't know all the moving parts underneath that are you know hacking people off or causing them to behave in a strange shape compared to what you kind of know of them. So so a lot of I guess energy is in, in just trying to understand those shapes uh, and work out what you have to do to to help that shape gel as a whole.
0: You mentioned uh, that you now have a coach. How important do you think having a coach is for when you're on the leadership team or even just XCO minus um, one?
1: I kind of think different things at different times. So um, sometimes when, I, when I've got coaches, I've done it because I felt I ought to. And then you kind of go through a, a, a pretty vanilla process which is interesting and curious but probably not earth-shattering but there are times when you need people i think to to hold a mirror up um and i think as as your peer group gets thinner having having somebody uh to kind of to hold that mirror up so who's who's not who's not involved in the fray who's got nothing at stake um is quite powerful and i would I think transitioning onto an XCO, that 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 bit of transition from you know I'm exco minus one, and I want to think about what it takes to be on an exco and what what that looks and feels like, and and what is it that I would need to be operating differently, to achieve. I think that's coach territory, and I think that uh, and I think how when you get onto an exco. How do I behave and fit it? How do I exert myself, be myself, and fit into the mold of and everyone, every exco, every board is different, and fit into that in a way that is cohesive and, and supportive the whole. Invariably, an exco are a reflection of their CEOs. So, um, and the way an exco behaves is a reflection of its CEOs. And most CEOs, even if they were great at building teams, um, are stretched way too thin to do that. And lots of CEOs don't necessarily want a cohesive team because they like more command and control and and everything coming up to them first. So you've got to know what the dynamics are that you're dealing with in whatever organization you're in and how to play your role in that. I mean, I spent, you know, at Pru, when I first went on to the XCO, um, I must have spent a year trying to get it to operate a different way before I realised that actually I was the one that needed to operate a different way because it's not, you know, it's not my show. I'm part of the show. I'm not the show. Um, so, so I think coaches at those levels and at those moments are really important. And then I think more generally, I wouldn't have one all the time, but um. But I think you know when you. W- w- I kind of now know when there's something niggling that I need to kind of kind of work through. I've, you know, so I look for those moments as well.
0: As a CEO and a woman, how important is the push for 50/50 gender equality in executive committees?
1: At the end of the day, we are in a society. We're in a, you know a democratic society that believes in equality. Um, we are not a democratic society that always delivers equality, um, and certainly the outcomes uh, on gender um, and even more extreme on ethnicity uh, and you know and some other minority areas, uh, we aren't delivering that as a whole. And um, I get very animated when people talk to me about the business case for diversity and inclusion, and I go, "This is a societal belief." Um, Why do I have to prove a business case to you as to whether it's right? Can you prove, can we do the business case for why it's not right? Because uh, it makes, you know, let's just get on with it. So I think it is really important um, that we get there, that we're a reflection of our society, that everyone has equal opportunities and equal outcomes come as a result of that as well. It's not just for gender, it's much broader than that. A uh, much broader, about it either you know much more about inclusive inclusivity in our society as a whole. Um, so you can't crack one without the other.
0: What difference has gender equality on the exCO uh, made to the decision making process, would you say?
1: Well early days, I think is the uh, the first thing I'd say so um, uh, and the second thing is I'm not sure that we'll ever know in in the sense of what is down to gender. So if you come back to what I said about how we construct an exco, you're trying by merit of the people that you're bringing in to have the people who you'll be the strong resilient ones and the people who will be the out there innovative ones uh, and the people who are caring and will always think about people first and uh, you know the deep expert in you know whatever it may be data or tech or, or you know who, who might be, some random combination of those things. And so um, I will never know whether it's because people, you know, because there's more women on the Exco or not. But what I'm hoping is you get to more kind of um, uh, a more natural path for decision-making because you've got all of those different, different pieces in the puzzle. And my job is really to, to hone the way we make decisions
0: to to make the most
1: many years time.
0: What advice would you give other companies as they seek to achieve high levels of gender equality?
1: Well I, I, I can share our learnings and we're not job done yet. So we may be around 50-50 on the XCO, but we're more like 30% through lots of the senior layers below that. So um uh, so we're still definitely work in progress. But Uh, When I've looked at, you know, and I've uh, sort of led diversity in several companies now, um, I think there are two things that you've got to focus on. um, Well, you know, the first most important thing is you have to consciously want to. So it doesn't happen by accident. It's an absolutely conscious choice that actually I'm going to invest energy, mental energy and effort in asking myself how we do this. Um, And that's base one. Uh, the wonderful thing about Direct line is people passionately follow kind of people love people. Um, they love customers and they love colleagues. And so a movement like inclusion or mental well well-being or you know is absolutely up their street. So um, you can create momentum and belief behind it in that sense, and that's quite powerful. but um, but I think there are two two main things. so uh, as a as a CEO or an HR director, you got a load of hardwiring that is that has to go in. So, are you using software to test for bias and you know your promotional specs and so on and so forth? When you're doing your talent reviews across the organisation, are you really conscious of who's you know your your gender balances and your ethnicity balances and asking yourself why those aren't coming through? You know, balanced shortlists. We've now put interview panels that are um, uh, that are balanced as well. So even if that means you've got a junior, um, you know, black person, perhaps in the interview panel, you, you know, interviewing someone much more senior. Um, we do that to try and mix up, uh, you know, break down some of the natural biases. Um, we have reverse mentoring uh, across the senior leadership, so that people are getting to know different areas and different, you know, different groups and their their particular issues and experiences. Um, all of those really are in the the things, the policies and are the policies and procedures even, you know, as parental leave even, is that, you know, there's a tick list of hard, what I would call hardwiring stuff that an organisation can put in place that in itself won't sort the issue, but will at least make you know that you're there. Um, and in there, I would have, we, we did an amazing diversity and inclusion survey last year after Black Lives Matter and George Floyd Um Uh, and it was really hard because we think we, you know, we thought we were great compared to most of the world. Not perfect, but great. Um, and when you do a kind of proper survey like that and you get enough trust going in the organization, you start to hear the experiences of the people you're not normally hearing. Um, uh, and that's hard. So, um, I'd recommend anyone to do that and look into it. You know, again, it's a mirror point because without that, you can't, you know, uh, you know, you can't respond. And then there's soft wiring, which is all about how do you make a world that people feel comfortable in? So, you know, I do wonder what these suits and tie things are all about. Um, Because when you look at social mobility, I'm not sure what that does to make people feel more comfortable to be themselves rather than be some portrayal of themselves. So we don't, people wear suits and ties if they like suits and ties, but they don't know if they don't, um, you know, so, so I, I think there are lots and lots of things that we do celebrating, uh, you know, different communities, different events, um, uh, you know, but, but we have very healthy networks in each of the areas, which are now have become, so we have eight networks covering different forms of, you know, uh, different groups and interests and, um. But we've now, over the last year, moved them to help policy advise as well. So they were kind of self-help groups, and they still are—you know—the self-support groups. But they're also now um, talking to us in the same way that our employee representative bodies talk to us about what you know what you could do that will make a difference. And we use them as sounding boards when we sign up to initiatives or something. We we always send them back off the uh, you know off the network strands to get to get their feel. So there's a lot that you can do to make it feel right. Um, And a lot of that is important, but it's, it starts with wanting to, it just starts with wanting to.
0: Totally agree with that, Penny. Finally, what would you want your legacy to be?
1: I think it's changed, I think it's changed. So um, it used to be, as I was growing up, as I was growing up, that sounds terrible. As I was in the early stages of my career, um, because I've never been a great one for saying I'm going to be a CEO or I'm, you know, I'm going to be whatever it's going to, you know, I never had a target like that. It was how far do I think I can go? And then it becomes, can I hold my own with the bit, you know, uh, with, with the senior folk in the city, because that would be a thing, wouldn't it? Um, because that's a thing that you can show other women and you can show other, just other people generally. But I think now it's different. I think that, um, we all have uh, to face into the fact that we have whatever you want to call it, but a climate crisis and no one, uh, the only way we get around that and we sort that is by every government, every CEO and every individual in our society changing. And so if I have a legacy, it'll be um, somewhere in the collaboration that is required across sectors across customers uh to move us down that path so uh i will ne- it will never mean you know mark khan his name anyone to know there are lots of big hitters out there who can steal the glory but i think any ceo that's in a in a position of any influence now uh, has a moral duty to be part of that puzzle
0: penny i want to thank you so much for being so honest and candid with your answers um i know the women out there and The Weakwells will find this interview absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Not at all. Thank you.
0: You have been listening to the Weakwell Unfiltered podcast. Weakwell works with the world's largest companies to help bring about gender equality. And that means starting at 50-50, gender parity at executive committee level. You can learn more at weekwell.com. Weekwell Unfiltered was written and produced by Katie Litchfield and Sean Smith.